Welcome to the Vine Church Podcast. Today, for our 50th episode, we have uh, Pastor Sam Storms. And Sam is a guy that I've known for a long time, kind of from afar, as a man who's published a lot of books and been very influential in Acts 29 as an Acts 29 pastor himself, but also as an uh, elder statesman of sorts in Acts 29. And he's had the the opportunity to be a real influence um, to guys like myself over the years at Acts 29 and conferences that we've had and things like that. So Sam, welcome to our podcast. It's good to be with you. I've been looking forward to this. Sorry we had to, I think we had it scheduled earlier and for whatever reason we had to reschedule, but I'm glad it's finally uh, here. <laughs> it's all good, man. It's all good. So Sam, why don't you just um, tell us who you are? Just give us you know, your bio, uh, what you're into, what makes you tick? Anything you want to share with us? <laughs> well, um, I'm, I'm an Okie by birth. Been born and raised in Oklahoma. Uh, went to Oklahoma University, Dallas Theological Seminary. Got my PhD at the University of Texas at Dallas. Uh, pastored in uh, Dallas for, gosh, 11 years. In Oklahoma after that for eight years. In Kansas City after that for seven years. Uh, kept moving north and... Uh, Taught at Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois, for four years in the Biblical and Theological Studies Department. Um, left there and started in Join God Ministries, which is my ministry outside of the church. Uh, traveled and wrote books for four years and then came to Bridgeway here in Oklahoma City in 2008. Uh, in fact, yesterday was the 13th anniversary of my time here at Bridgeway. Well, congratulations. Uh, oh, well, thank you. Well, yeah, in fact, I've got one more year to go. I'm stepping down in uh, probably August or September of next year uh, as lead pastor. Um, so we're in the process of transition right now. It's going pretty well. Uh, the Lord has been giving us a lot of insight and provision and such. But uh, what makes me tick? Um, wow, that's a good question. <laughs> I, I, I love studying God's word. I love this may sound strange to some people. I love sermon preparation and even more yeah. sermon delivery. I yeah. love studying and teaching and preaching God's word. Uh, that perhaps more than anything else. Um, I'm a little bit of an odd duck when it comes to theology. Um, I'm an amillennial, charismatic, Calvinistic, complementarian Christian hedonist, <laughs> which a lot of people say, what in the world is that? Yeah. Well, <laughs> um, I'd love to unpack that maybe a little later. We'll see. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I've got um, been married to my wife for, <clears throat> well, let me just go forward a few months. Next May, it'll be 50 years. Wow. So, uh, half, half a century she's put up with me. You guys had, must have been really young when you got married. Uh, I was 21. She was 20. Yep. So I turned 70 in February, so uh, I'm, I'm an old guy. Yep. Um, we have two, two grown daughters, four grandchildren, and... Uh, yeah, life is going well. We love being here in Oklahoma City. We're going to stay here. We're not going anywhere after I step down from my role as lead pastor. Help me understand um, your reasoning and thinking about changing uh, what you're focusing on in terms of a career. Well, <clears throat> it comes from a couple of things. Um, number one, 
I really do think our church needs younger leadership. Uh, I am, except for one staff member, I'm probably um, 25 years older than any other pastor uh, on our staff. And I just think the the needs of the church and the direction of the church and um, the people just need a younger, more energetic leader than than somebody my age. So I'll be 71 and a half when I step down. Um, secondly, um, and again, I hope and pray that neither you nor any other young pastor listening to this will experience what I have experienced. Maybe in about 40 or 50 years, you will. But after doing this for almost a half a century, you tend to lose your emotional resiliency in mm. dealing with um, all the issues that come your way, managing a staff, yep. uh, overseeing all the needs and the demands of individuals. And I've just found myself growing a little bit weary in that regard. Um, and then thirdly, uh, I look forward to um, all that I think God wants me to do after I leave. I, I'm under contract to do a number of writing projects. Uh, I've got a lot of book ideas in mind that I want to pursue. Yeah. Um, I have my own podcast. Uh, I just recorded, I think, the 52nd episode uh, this morning. Um, yeah, tell our uh, listeners about your podcast real quick. What, how can they find it? Yeah, just wherever you listen to podcasts, it's called Exploring Word and Spirit. Um, if you go to my website, it's the easiest way, which is samstorms.org, not samstorms.com. It's samstorms.org. And right there on the right-hand side at the top, you'll see the link to the podcast. You click that, it'll take you to uh, where you can listen, or you can click at the very top, it says podcast. And there are like six or seven options, uh, places where you can uh, access the podcast. You can subscribe to it. And I I post uh, episodes twice a week, every Tuesday and every Friday. Okay. And I'm right in the middle of a, of probably what's going to be an eight part series on worship. So uh, I've been really been enjoying that. Awesome. I'd love to hear you unpack just almost kind of selfishly and others can listen in <laughs> the, the, the phrase emotional resiliency, because for me, I mean, I'm 45 and, um, I feel like that's, that's a genuine challenge. Um, Sure. Thankfully, uh, I have a sabbatical coming up that I'm really looking forward to. And, you know, there's been some challenging days recently where you feel like emotionally, you know, on my bad days, you feel like I'm, I'm not cut out for this. On your good days, you know, you're you're not um, sinfully overconfident, but, you know, you just want to be faithful. <laughs> like, help us understand what... Like, what is it about aging that connects with emotional resiliency? Well, I think a lot of it is just the physical energy uh, to keep up with all the demands of being a lead pastor of a large church. Um, I remember talking with John Piper about this when John was stepping down after 30 some odd years at Bethlehem. I asked him why. And he he. At the time when he explained it to me, I couldn't connect with it. Now I can. Mm-hmm. And he just said, he said, I think the church has outgrown my gifting. Mm-hmm. And what he meant by that is John is very much like me or I'm very much like him. I'm a pastor teacher. I like to study, to teach and preach and to write. And um, overseeing a church as large as Bethlehem was with three campuses and 40 elders and 
dozens of staff members and having to constantly be on on um, target with uh, vision and right. resolving uh, relational conflicts and dealing with, are we going to have enough volunteers for children's ministry? Right. Um, and now I think I've reached this age and uh, I think I understand better. I think somebody, I'm not really a visionary leader. I'll just mm. be honest with you. That's not my strong point. Um, my vision is to get to dinner without sinning again. That's just about as far in the future as I can look. Yeah. Um, so, <clears throat> but I, I understand the challenges that come and I know I understand how you can feel even at your age. Um, I think I have, I have thrived and I think flourished in this role for many years, simply because um, I just have really taken to heart things the Apostle Paul has said. Second Corinthians 4, 16 through 18 has been instrumental in my life where Paul talks about, though our outer man is wasting away, our inner man is being renewed as we set our sights uh, upon the things that are not seen rather than the things that are seen. In other words, focused on the glory that is yet to come is the way you ask Paul, how in the world did you not quit? Right. Why didn't you give up? Why right. didn't you step into retirement? And I think Paul would say, man, I just kept my eyes focused on the glory that's to be revealed uh, to us. And uh, that's what keeps me pressing on. And then just his heart for the church, as you know, he talks about in 2 Corinthians 12 about spending and being spent for the people of God. Yeah. And um, I have enjoyed doing that. I have not, I've not grown weary of that. Um, I just think it's probably a season after, you know, after by next year, when I step down, what'll that be? I'm trying to think it'll be um, 48 years in pastoral and public ministry. Uh, and I, again, as I said, I hope to continue. I'm not going to retire. I don't believe in doing nothing. Sure. I'm not going to play golf and garden, although playing golf and gardening is great. <laughs> sure. That's just not who I am. Sure. Uh, so, yeah, that's kind of where I am and, and, and how I've arrived at the place where I think it's the right time. Yeah, Sam, I remember poignantly, this really impacted me um, at a conference, Acts 29 conference. Gosh, it was probably six, seven years ago. And you stood up and you said something like, yeah, I'll just paraphrase, see if you remember this. Like you were like, I'm 50 something years old or I'm 60 something years old. And I thought when I was younger, the older I got, the easier ministry would get. And you stood up and you said to all of us pastors, I've never had a season of ministry this difficult. And, um, like that you were, does that ring a bell? Yeah. Saying that. And that it was almost like, I think you were confessing being surprised or something or, well, you know, I, <laughs> I think, uh, I'm trying to remember exactly what season or what time that was. <clears throat> the fact of the matter is, um, praise God for the sanctifying work of the Holy spirit, both in me and in others, but people are still broken. And they're still confused and selfish right. and sinful and struggling and um, don't always respond to your best efforts in the way that we think that they should. And that can be very frustrating. And I'm right. thinking back about seven, eight years ago when I might have said that, and I can remember the season in life, maybe some challenges with certain staff members. Um, so... Yeah, I, it, ministry does not get easier as you go along. It, it, <laughs> That's not what I wanted to hear, Sam. <laughs> yeah, 
No, it doesn't. No, it would. I would be uh, less than honest right. if I didn't say that. And it's um, not biblical either, right? Yeah. I now let me say this. This sounds contradictory. Yeah. It can become more fulfilling and satisfying and joyful. Sure. That doesn't mean it gets any easier. Sure. It's just that you begin to see evidence of the Spirit's work in your own life and in the life of your local church in ways that you might not have early on. Uh, but the challenges and the heartache, and I mean, I was just having lunch with my youth pastor just an hour or so before we did this podcast, and um, we were talking about two young ladies who, after graduating high school, left our church. We thought they were going to another good church. Turns out they're both so deconstructing, as the word is being used today. Right. That just breaks my heart. Yep. Um, so I'm reaching out to both of them. I want to find out what's going on in their lives. That's the sort of thing that makes it increasingly difficult is to watch people that you thought were on a path with Jesus wandering away. Right. And um, that, that grieves me. That breaks my heart. And, and I want to do everything I can to try to reverse that. Do you feel, Sam, like you get thicker skin over the years? Uh, in some respects, I've always had a thick skin. Okay. Um, by God's grace, I don't hold a grudge. I don't think, honestly, if I look at my soul, somebody my, somebody says, Storms, you're not being honest. You're living in la-la land. When I say I don't think I've carried a grudge in my entire life. Sure. Um, so I take criticism pretty well. Um, I want to learn from it. Mm-hmm. As I get older, um, I don't know. I don't. I think that depends. That's, that's personality specific. In other words, I don't think there's one size fits all. I don't think sure. I can say to every pastor out there, hey, don't worry. As you get older, your thin's going to grow thicker. Um, your skin's going to grow thicker. Uh, for some, it may. For others, it may not. For yeah. some, the, the, the hits may hurt more the older you get. For some, they may hurt less. I just right. think each individual has to gauge their own soul, figure out how they respond to pushback and and uh, failures in ministry. So I think it, I think it varies from person to person. I don't think there's a one size fits all. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this, this, these past 18 months or so have been some of the strange, this is probably the strangest I've ever endured. Um, you're a little older than me. So I'd love to hear if, how that ranks in your life experience. But as you reflect on these last 18 months or so, I'm sure you've had many conversations with different people about the strangeness of these times that we're living in, whether it's COVID or the Trump phenomenon or, or whatever. Mm. Um, are, are there any like reoccurring reflections or um, themes that you've been meditating on um, about how to think about these times as a Christian? <laughs> yes, very, very, very much so. Uh, it has been the most challenging time in all my years of ministry. I mean, there was no, there was no seminary class on how to pastor a church in a pandemic. Uh, I think all of us have been learning um, just each day with each step and and trying not to overreact, but trying to to process what's been going on. Every pastor I talk to, a lot of them respond with tears about how many people have left their church and not come back. And the reasons why they leave and the, the polarizing responses to masks and distancing and mandates and everything. I mean, I've got a 
bunch of emails on my computer from ch- people in our church. Half of them say uh, to require masks at any, we, we required masks at an early service, optional at the second. Now they're optional at both. But uh, even though we gave people the option, it was you're capitulating to fear and governmental control. Right. Um, others said, no, not requiring masks at both services means you don't love other people. If you right. really cared about their health, you, you would make it mandatory all the time. Right. And I just realized, and we've talked about it on our team, you can't win. We just have to do the best that we think we can with God's wisdom and help. Um, I, it grieves me to see how, and again, the election, um, the racial unrest in our country, uh, all of which have just aggravated the circumstances in a way that we've never seen before. Right. I read a statement the other day in a book, and it, it, I thought, oh, my goodness, this guy is right, and it's horrible that he's right. Hmm. He said that, that they're discovering that people are more likely to marry somebody of similar political convictions than they are somebody of same spiritual conviction. Yeah. In other words— I'll, I'm going to marry a Democrat because I'm a Democrat or a Republican because I'm a Republican ahead of the question of I'm going to marry a person because they're a believer in Jesus. Right. That is just heartbreaking. Um, and so, yeah, we've seen it. Uh, we've navigated pretty well. I don't think we've lost many people from Bridgeway uh, over this issue. Uh, we've seen a ton of new people come in and Mm-hmm. What scares me is that I fear they might be the people who left the other churches for those reasons and now are trying us out. So, right. Right. Um, yeah. I, and so the one thing have I learned, absolutely, I t- tell our people over and over and over again, if you are not deeply rooted in the biblical truth that Jesus is Lord and sovereign over all of creation and that what's been happening is not an indication that he's out of control. Right. If anything, it's an indication that his coming is closer than ever before. Now, I don't know when he's going to return, but one begins to wonder how much longer can our society and our world um, spin and um, deteriorate the way that it has over these last two years. Now, I know probably everybody in every history, uh, age of church history has said the same thing. Right. But I have to cling to the reality of the sovereignty of Christ, that mm-hmm. he is holding all things together and he is carrying all things to their proper consummation. And, um, you know, I, I'm sit, we're sitting here in the aftermath of wildfires and earthquakes and hurricanes and, um, you know, the just tragic events everywhere. And it, I, the only thing I think that keeps my head up is realizing these didn't catch Jesus by surprise. These are all part of his plan. They're a way to alert his people uh, to call us to repentance and to trust in him and him only because you really can't trust in anything else, nothing else, right? Not our government, not our leaders, um, not peace in society, not Western comforts, uh, not good weather. It has to be uh, a wholehearted confidence and trust in Jesus alone. So that's the main lesson I'm learning. Amen. I've been finding myself mentioning to people lately, like being a student of church history, I think really works in our favor. And you alluded to it, but we're not the first set of Christians um, that have endured really, really challenging things where sure. it might feel like the sky is falling, you know? Um, so I, I just, I'd commend that to our listeners as well. Like, remember, we're not the only ones, you know, <laughs> and, and our culture too, you know, there's other people around the world that, 
chaos is just what they live in. If you're I mean, Christian, go ahead. Stop and think about the fact that there was in the Roman Empire in the uh, latter years of the third century AD, there was actually a formal decree from the emperor that was designed to eradicate Christianity from the face of the earth. The persecution right. was empire wide. Right. We haven't seen that. I mean, a lot of our brothers and sisters have on the other side of the earth. Right. In North Korea and in China. Nigeria and yeah. Iran, but um, you know, we haven't we haven't touched taste touched or tasted that yet. But I keep telling our people, it's coming. Yeah. I'm not a doomsday guy, but trust me, it's coming to the states. We're beginning to see uh, indications of it. Yeah. You mentioned this already, Sam. And I'd love to hear you reflect on it. And I think my question is. In recent days, we've seen, it seems like we've seen, and that's part of my question, is this reality or is this just we have more access to information through the internet? But it seems like these stories of deconversion or ex-evangelical are more prominent. Do you think that's true? Um, Like that it's a phenomenon culturally or is it just maybe that we have more access to information and people have a voice that spreads farther it's probably both but i do think it's more pre- prevalent today for a variety of reasons i think it's the loss of confidence in the inspiration and authority of scripture yeah um that's that's the final decisive factor is why do you believe what you believe yep and if you don't have confidence that god's word is inerrant inspired and authoritative for our lives well where are you going to turn for guidance well to yourself to society, to the latest popular opinion poll, to what your friends say, to whatever will win you um, an acceptance with others or promote your cause in the earth. So plus the fact that um, just the moral fabric of our society is unraveling at an incredible pace, issues of um, sexuality all across the board. I mean, when I know the transgender thing probably existed in generations past, mm-hmm. you don't read much about it. Not the way it is now. Right. Um, the normalization of all forms of immorality. Um, yeah, I, I think um, just globalization as a whole. And what I mean by that is, if people are confused, just the growing awareness of the existence of billions of people who uh, follow different gods, different mm-hmm. religions. Mm-hmm. And it's made a lot of Christians think, well, what right do we have to think that we've got a market on the truth or right. a corner on the truth? Um, can we really say that those who do not embrace Jesus are eternally lost? So those kinds of questions, um, just the increasing moral relativism in our world has, I think, kind of pushed people down this path in a way that maybe it's more evident than it has been in, in times past. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I feel like I don't want to be pessimistic because it's, you know, in one sense, Christians should never be ultimately pessimistic, right? But that there are these factions, especially in our culture, where this, this feels like the sides are being and the lines are being drawn up with more clarity. Um, and my my concern or my, I'm wondering if, is there any hope for reconciliation between um, someone who might be, you know, um, a rabid Trump supporter where it's Trump supporter, then Christian in terms of the order of priority. And then on the other side, you have somebody who says that, uh, all you have to do is declare 
yourself to be a gender and, and it is a fact. And those, those two sides to me feel like they're irreconcilable in some sense. Um, and that Christians are kind of getting caught in the middle somehow, um, in terms of, you know, trying to figure all that stuff out. So yeah, man, I, I'm just, I'm just, uh, concerned about where our culture is heading. I, I, I said to my kids the other day, and I'd love to hear what you think of this, like, it, it always takes time and none of this affects Jesus being on the throne or not, of course. Right. But I said to my kids, I wouldn't be surprised if, if your kids are the ones that see like the, the downfall of the United States as like the primary power in the world because of just implosion culturally of some of these, these pressures. If Jesus doesn't return first, Yes. Tragically, I think you're probably right. I think there are certain things in our culture that are absolutely irreconcilable. Mm-hmm. Now, I think Christians can reconcile who are on different sides of the political spectrum. There's no mm-hmm. reason why that can't happen. Right. But again, it comes down to this issue of ultimate moral authority. I ask our people all the time. I say, folks, what is your ultimate moral authority? Is it the word of God or is it what you like? and mm-hmm. feel, and want, and prefer. Um, and, and until you answer that question, um, there's, there's, it's hard to reconcile people who are on differing sides of a particular issue. Right. I said to them the other day in a message, I said, look, when you read the Bible, and you come across something with which you disagree, who wins? Right. You or the Bible? Your preferences or God's word? And people hear that and they go, oh, yeah, 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 God's word, of course, of course. But when it comes right down to it, if God's word says something that they think is unjust or unfair or um, is contrary to the way they want to live their own lives, they'll find out what their ultimate moral authority is. And it turns out to be self. Yeah. And I really think that if it, we have to press that issue. If we don't press that issue. We don't wake people up to the fact that there are only two options. Either God's word is authoritative or your own personal soulish preferences and desires are authoritative. Right. Um, I don't see that there's much else out there. Yeah. I remember Tim Keller saying one time, or maybe I read it in reason for God or something like that, but like, does the God you believe in ever disagree with you? Cause if, cause if the answer is no, then you're probably just worshiping an image of yourself. Sure. You know, but that question confronts all of us. You know, am exactly. I willing to be made uncomfortable by God's word and submit to it? Because it's not just people with view, whatever views that are easy for me, but it's like, man, when it says I need to like not focus on the speck and focus on my log, that confronts me. That's uncomfortable. You know, <laughs> very much so. Very much so. Yeah, it is a. It, it's it's surprising to me and disappointing. If there's anything disappointing, it's this that I hear people affirm their belief in the authority of scripture until such time as scripture says something that they don't like. Right. And I said, you know, the measure of your maturity as a Christian and of your humility Mm -hmm. is the degree to which you're willing to say, I have to change the way I think. Yeah. I have to make adjustments in how I live because what I used to think and how I used to live is contrary to what God says clearly in his word. That's the sign of maturity and humility. Amen. And it's very, unfortunately, it's very rare. Amen. Well, Sam, let me switch gears here. Um, 
I think probably every Christian that I know of, literally, is listening to this podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill Church. Yeah. Um, have you been listening to that, Sam? I have. I have. At times, I get a little frustrated. Uh, I, I know Mike Cosper. Uh, he's a good friend. Um, yeah. I think he has profound integrity. He's done a great job of researching this. Mm-hmm. I think there are good lessons for us all to learn from it. Uh, I think there are warnings in there all along the way. On the other hand, I oftentimes ask myself, how beneficial is it for us to just hang out our dirty laundry and talk about how pastors have failed? Right. Uh, is that is that really that helpful? Um, so I, you know, I, I have kind of a mixed reaction. I will I will continue to listen to it, mm-hmm. um, and I may go back and listen to some. You know, I listened to the one uh, in which he interviewed Josh Harris. Um, you may think I'm naive and I'm a little bit of a Pollyanna, but I know Josh and I, I simply don't believe his deconstruction. I just don't believe it. I don't think he believes it. I don't know what's going on in his life, but I honestly believe the man's born again. And I think he's going to come back to the Lord and be fully restored. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't say that about his marriage. I don't know what led to the divorce, but you know, you were talking about ex ex evangelicals. Um, you know, he's kind of the poster child for that now. Um, I think there'll be a reversal. If Josh is listening to this, Josh, I love you and I'm praying for you and hope mm-hmm. to see the day when that happens. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I kind of riffed off when you asked the question, is there anything more you want to know about the rise and fall of Mars Hill? I just love to hear you reflect. I mean, I've been having so many conversations with our elders and, and other friends in pastoral ministry or just, we have a guy at our church who um, lived through the early years of that, who's now a member of our church, and he had a front row seat to some of the things that were happening in like 2005, six, and seven. Um, but I just love to hear your reflections as a, again, as, as someone a generation ahead of me, and what are the cautionary tales maybe for? Yeah. I mean, the cautionary tales seem obvious, but I'd love to hear what you, what stands out to you. Yeah, here's the challenge I face in answering that is I want to be able to separate. Um, the lessons to be learned from that podcast from the person of Mark Driscoll himself. And some people will say, well, you can't do that because it's all about Mark. Well, it is in one sense, but I feel like I know Mark pretty well. Um, I taught in the school that he, the retrained school that he had up in uh, Seattle. Um, I came into Acts 29 largely through his influence. I liked the direction it was going. I liked the emphasis he placed on, sovereignty of God and the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. Um, so I, I grieve over what happened. Um, I, I can say this, although I was not in Seattle, one of the seven men who was appointed, you remember that if you've heard the series, there were seven elders from our pastors from their churches that were assigned the task of investigating this massive document with multiple charges that were brought against Mark. Yeah. And I had never met this guy, but he calls me out of the blue and he says, I need an outside objective voice. Help me process all of this. So I was in fairly regular communication with him all the way up. He called me even on the day that Mark walked in and resigned Mm -hmm. and just to try to help him navigate through that. Um, I love Mark. I pray for him. I'm grieved by what I think is happening at his new church in Arizona. But on the other hand, it, it, 
if it's possible for people to kind of differentiate in their minds between Mark as a man, as a pastor on the one hand, and the dynamics of celebrity pastors, mega churches, the hunger for power, how you relate to staff and elders and the lessons uh, that you need to learn. And, and I think one of the biggest lessons that I hope pastors learn from this is that bad ecclesiology hurts people. Amen. I'll say that again. Bad ecclesiology hurts people. So Sam, some people listening might not even know what ecclesiology is. Sure. The doctrine of the church. How is your church structured? How is it governed? Mm-hmm. Do you have a plurality of male elders, which we in Acts 29 do? Mm-hmm. Uh, are there uh, processes of accountability? Um, or is it just a one-man show in such that the senior pastor uh, can veto everything? He can override any decision on the part of the elders. He is somehow unilateral in his authority. Um, the way that the church functions in terms of governance, decision-making, how money is made use of, um, openness about finances, yes, all these sorts of things. If you don't have uh, wisdom and a, a good governance in your local church, it can wreak havoc. Mm-hmm. And I think that is as much to blame as any one particular person in the situation at Mars Hill. Um, I just think, I think they started out well mm-hmm. and then changes were made. And you can hear about those changes right. in the podcast and um, they were devastating. And I think to a large extent contributed massively to the implosion of that church. Yeah. Church government is boring. Who wants to listen to a, a sermon series on church government? But man, yeah. it is so important. It's so important. I don't think it's boring at all, but I'm imagining like trying to pitch that sermon series and it's like, eh, but but man, uh, it's important. There's a book that came out just about six months ago by Dave Harvey Mm -hmm. called The Plurality Principle. And I wrote the foreword to it. It is massively helpful. I would encourage every local church pastor and every elder, every aspiring pastor to read it. Mm -hmm. Dave navigate, Dave has walked through a lot of train wrecks in local churches himself. And he's seen the good, the bad, and the ugly. And it's a thoroughly biblical and incredibly wise and practical book. I just highly recommend it. Yeah. What is it about plurality that is so helpful and necessary? One thing, it puts a bridle on our on personal sin. Um, if I, I just think about my own situation, I would hate to think the things I would have done if I didn't have godly mature men holding me accountable and saying, Hey, slow down, buddy. Yep. Let's rethink this. Let's look at this from a different angle. Have you considered this perspective? Have you thought about how it's going to affect these people? Right. Um, if, if I just were able to ramrod through every impulse or every idea that I had, perish the thought. I mean, that scares the daylights out of me. <laughs> um, I'm so grateful for the elders that I have at Bridgeway who um, are really wise men they're experienced, they're mature, and they're not afraid to step up and say, Sam, we think you need to reconsider this, and yep. here's why. Yep. So that's why plurality is so important. Yeah, yeah, that's good. One of the reasons. I mean, Dave gives a multitude of other reasons in his book. Yeah, we've seen that. I heard someone say, um, there is some glorious inefficiencies in plurality of eldership. You know what I mean? Because if it's just sure. one person making the decision, it happen, things can happen fast. Well, sure. Like, I mean, the best form of government is a benign dictatorship. 
Right. Both in the church and in the world. Right. If you had a really benign, perfect, highly moral, wise, mature person to make all the decisions, boy, it'd make things operate a lot smoother. Right. Same in the church. But the problem is we're not benign. Right. And we're not um, altogether wise. We're broken, fallen, selfish, impulsive people. That's why we need one another. Mm-hmm. Amen. Amen. Well, I'd love to ask you this, Sam. Like, there's been a lot of things that aren't super encouraging that we've talked about in these first 37 minutes. Um, what's something that you're really encouraged about at, at your age um, as you think about um, where you've been and where we currently are? As you think about whether it's your ministry or just trends uh, that you're observing in, in the church, what's something you're encouraged by these days? I would say it's two things, but they are really hyphenated. It's what I would call word and spirit. I'm encouraged that we're seeing, uh, I think, a new generation of young men, young pastors being raised up who are really committed to the authority of God's word, to expositional verse-by-verse preaching, who won't deviate from that under any terms. They're committed to it. That gives me hope for the life of the local church and the growth of of God's people. At the same time, I'm also encouraged to see the hunger that many pastors have now for the things of the spirit to move in greater power, coming to realize the supernatural and dwelling presence of the spirit and the operation through spiritual gifts and the realization that many of them are now coming to that you can't separate word and spirit. God has joined them. He has wedded them. They cannot be divorced if you try to, You'll end up either having a church that resembles a three-ring circus on the one hand or a morgue on the other. Um, And I think it is only through the convergence of word and spirit that we're going to thrive as a body, uh, as a local church. And I'm seeing more pastors committed to that. They reach out to me to find out more about this. Um, So that, I think, is probably the most encouraging thing that I see. Um, I think one other thing is just the... uh, the commitment of the local church to global mission in seeing um, people willing to go into places like Afghanistan and other uh, hot spots around the world and devote their lives to planting churches where there is no gospel witness. That's Amen. incredibly encouraging to me as well. Amen. Amen. Well, Sam, speak to the issue of word and spirit more specifically for our church. So to give you a little context, um, we're probably your classic church that is not confessionally cessationist, but maybe functionally. You know, um, we preached a sermon series 10 weeks on the Holy Spirit. Gosh, that was probably two or three years ago that we, you know, because we wanted to emphasize the things of the Spirit. We felt like we neglected the Holy Spirit in our formal teaching of the Word. Um, and I felt like it was really profitable. I really enjoyed doing it. But when it comes to um, engaging in the things of the spirit on a more practical and uh, experiential way, um, how do you generally counsel churches like us? Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Um, I just, before we started the podcast, I finished um, describing the three messages I'm going to bring at a conference down in Houston at a place called Woods Edge Church, and I'm doing it with Jack Deere and Matt Chandler. Everybody will know Matt. Mm -hmm. And it's on, 
it's primarily for pastors, but not exclusively. Anybody can come about how to implement the things of the spirit in the life of the local church without going haywire. Um, it's October 4th, 5th, and 6th. People ought to, if, they were, if they're interested, <laughs> I know you're up there in Wisconsin. Maybe not many of your people would go to Houston, but yeah. it's called the Pursuit Conference at Woods Edge Church, October 4th, 5th, and 6th. But the question you just asked, and I don't, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to make this a, an unpaid uh, advertisement, commercial advertisement here. Please. I was, I was asked that question literally dozens and dozens and dozens of times by email, by telephone, in personal conversation. Pastors would say to me basically what you just said. We're not cessationist in our theology. We believe in the authority and the power of God's word. We would like to be able to move in greater manifestations of the Spirit's work, but I'm scared to death that if I do it, I'll run people off. I'll blow up our church. Right. We'll split. I'll, you know, our big givers will get offended and leave. And then secondly, they just said, no, I'm still committed to doing it. I just don't know how. Right. What are some practical steps I can take? So after getting those questions over the years, I finally decided I just got to write a book. So sure. I did. It's called Practicing the Power. Okay. And Practicing the Power, it's published by Zondervan. It's been out about three years now. It was primarily initially written for pastors like yourself. Um, and then Zonovan said, can you broaden the audience to so that every Christian, whether in leadership or not, can benefit from it? So I did. But I primarily had the local church pastor in mind. And I just talk about, all right, if you're committed to this, here's what you can expect to bump up against. Here are the fears you're going to encounter. Here's the pushback you're going to you're going to experience. And here are some practical things you can do in terms of implementing prayer ministry in your church and how you can um, um, make use of small group ministry as mm. the primary way in which the gifts of the spirit can be exercised. Um, and just how do you how do you facilitate spiritual gifts in a corporate gathering where there may be several hundred people in an auditorium on a Sunday morning? Right. Um, so I, that was kind of the point of the book. And so. Again, you asked the question, and, I, and my answer is, read my book. I hate to do that. No, no, no. I, I, I'm fully supportive of that, and, and I will, and I'll commend it to our people. And um, yeah, it just seems like a, a jump where it's like, our, you know, for so many organizations, there's just a culture that you kind of default into based on personalities. Usually, it's based on personalities of the leaders. Sure. And... As far as I know, I don't have the gift of tongues. Um, I've never healed anybody. Um, if I, I could say maybe once or twice, I felt like I've had a word of knowledge. Um, I, and honestly, I don't even know how to define that in terms of the stri if there's strict boundaries on what that means. Sure. Um, I've I've seen things that I can't explain, and and I'm not again. It's like I'm not um, a cessationist. I'm not convinced of that biblically. But like for a church like us, where all of our leaders are probably like me to a certain degree, I don't know that for a fact, but like, um, it just seems like a, a massive cultural shift. Yeah, it is. Have you seen churches make that shift and, and have it go okay? Yeah, mine did. <laughs> <laughs> Back when I was pastoring in Oklahoma in the previous century, <laughs> yeah. uh, when my theology changed, uh, we made the transition. Uh, it took about five years. I did it very, very slowly. I, in fact, I talk about how I did it in the book, Practicing the Power. Um, I think, I think first of all, 
you got to sit down with your leader and say, all right, guys, are we really committed to this? Do we actually believe that we are morally obligated to do what Paul commanded in 1 Corinthians 14, 1, earnestly desire spiritual gifts, right. especially that you may prophesy. Right. Do we believe that is binding on our conscience? Um, or, or do we think, eh, for some churches, not for ours. Right. But Paul didn't limit his audience. He made that command to all Christians. So what do you, how are you going to respond to that? Um, what I've done recently, um, I finally sat down. I thought, you know, I need to write kind of a, an exhaustive, as exhaustive as I can, book on spiritual gifts. So I did. It's called Understanding Spiritual Gifts, a Comprehensive Guide. It's about 370 pages. Yeah. It's, about, it's been out. It's been out less than a year. It came out in uh, what September of last year. Zondervan publishes it. I cover every spiritual gift, um, all 20, 21, however many you count in the New Testament. I, I devote extensive treatment of all the texts relevant to them. I talk about how they can be exercised in the church. Um, so it's a it's truly a comprehensive guide. Um, but again, you know, I. I just keep coming back to this, this fact that first Corinthians 14, one and 1439 are, are commandments. They aren't optional. You can't respond to that by saying, well, that's just not our spiritual DNA. Paul's saying, make it your spiritual DNA. Sure. Take steps to make it. This is what God wants for the local church. Sure. You can't say, well, you know, I'll pray about it. No, you don't pray about whether you're going to obey God's word. Right. So let me ask you this, Sam. I know you probably have brothers that you love and respect that come from different traditions, and you've had this conversation with them, and you bring up 1 Corinthians 14, 1. Like, what do they say? Um, usually one thing, but it's actually two. The one thing they say is, well, if I do that, won't prophecy undermine the finality and the authority of Scripture? Won't won't that require that we open up the canon of scripture and slip in a few words of knowledge that somebody in your church gave? Yep. That betrays a horrible misunderstanding of the nature of New Testament prophecy. And I have extensive treatment of that in understanding spiritual gifts. Mm -hmm. but, but that's the that's the primary argument I get, is if we open ourselves up to and our church to the reality of the Spirit's work, the revelatory gifts of the Spirit, whether prophecy, word of knowledge, word of wisdom, and so on, um, discerning the spirits, won't that undermine our confidence and our reliance upon God's 66 books, the inspired Bible? Right. No, it won't. But beneath all of it, there's another factor that some of them will acknowledge, but you have to kind of push, and it's fear. If I do this, if I obey that passage, if I seek to really study this, teach on it, practice it in my church— won't we end up doing the crazy, goofy things that we see on TV? Right. Won't we fall, won't we fall into the trap of, of these people who manipulate and uh, are self-serving? Won't it lead into, you know, the health and wealth gospel and word of faith and right. some of the fanaticism that we see? And the answer to that is no. Um, you can't let, if you let fear dictate how much obedience to God's word you're going to pursue, you're going to be in bad shape. Um I, I, yeah, I, I just tell people all the time, look, the abuse of spiritual gifts is no justification for the disuse of spiritual gifts. Yeah. Paul didn't tell the Corinthians, hey, shut it down, put it on the shelf. It's not important. They had abused these gifts. They had divided into factions. 
Uh, some were arrogantly thinking they're more spiritual than others. And Paul, Paul didn't say, hey, put on the brakes. To those very people, right. he said, earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially yes. you may prophesy. Yeah, the Corinthian and church was a, was a train wreck. Yeah, and yet what does he do? He gives guidelines. He gives practical principles. He said, here, here's how you do it. Don't do it that way. Do it this way, but at least do it. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, it, uh, well, I kind of lost my train of thought there. Uh, yeah, the fear part. That's, you know, I look back on my own journey. That was massively influential with me. I was so terrified mm-hmm. of being, of guilt by association. Yep. Of people thinking, oh, you're like that guy who stands on a platform and blows on people and throws his jacket at them and knocks them over and, and fabricates healing stories so he can get a bigger offering. Right. And I had to finally move past the fact that I cannot allow the fact that somebody else has done it badly to make me decide not to do it at all. Right. Why can't we do it well? Why can't we do it biblically and not be uh, controlled by fear of being associated with those who've really done it poorly? What do you think churches miss out on? I mean, that sounds kind of stupid because it's it seems somewhat obvious, but how would you challenge uh, churches that are neglecting what the Bible says about these things? Well, I would say go back to Scripture, see how it prioritizes these things. Uh, I think in my book, I counted upwards of 150 individual verses in the New Testament alone that talk about the work of the Spirit through gifts. Um, I, I would say you're missing, my goodness, you say, what are you missing out on? The answer is God. Yeah. Amen. You're, miss, you're missing out on who he is and what he can do. I mean, think about this. People say, well, what is a spiritual gift? Well, Paul defined it for us. First Corinthians 12, 7. He called it the manifestation of the spirit. That's his definition of a spiritual gift. It's the spirit of God himself. It's not a, a thing or a stuff he gives us. It's himself operating through us, coming to, to visible and vocal expression for the building up of the body of Christ. And if you don't pursue spiritual gifts, if you don't make room for their exercise, the Spirit of God cannot and will not manifest His presence. You miss His person. You miss His power. You miss the depth of intimacy that He wants to cultivate in our hearts with Jesus. You know, one of His primary purposes is to shine a light on the glory of Christ. But if, but if the Spirit is constantly quenched and suppressed and His gifts are ruled out of order, there's so much about Jesus that you miss out on. I know that sounds strange because, and again, I don't want to, I don't want anybody to interpret what I'm saying as a suggestion that our cessationist brothers are not godly, mature, Christ-exalting people. Of course they are. Mm-hmm. Um, God is merciful, and He can do amazing things through us, um, even when perhaps we aren't entirely faithful to what He says in His Word. I think of the ways God has been able to bless me and my ministry in spite of the multitude of errors I made down through the years as a pastor. Um, I'm just saying there's so much more that I think a lot of people are missing uh, in terms of um, experiencing the presence and the power of God that they could have if they were just take very seriously the commandments and the exhortations of God's word. Yeah. Amen. Amen. I really appreciate that, Sam. Let me ask you one final question. Um, and I want to hearken back to what you said about being married for 50 years. 
And our uh, probably our dominant demographic at our church is um, maybe married five, six years, seven years, two small kids, a, a baby and a toddler, or maybe just newlyweds, no kids. Um, I'm kind of the older guy at our church at 45. And what would you say to your 25-year-old self about marriage? And what, um, like if you go, go back and change something for the sake of your blessing 30, 40 years later, maybe even 20 years later, what do you think you would say to your younger self? And, and also, because you know your wife so well, what could you anticipate? She's not here, but what could you anticipate her saying about that? Oh, wow. Oh, my. I think one of the most important lessons I learned as our marriage was on the brink. We were five years into it. Um, I thought I was God's gift to women and one woman in particular. <laughs> and the fact of the matter is I didn't understand her at all. Yeah. I didn't understand her needs. I thought if I didn't need something, she didn't need it. If I right. wanted something, she would want it. If I was hurt by this, she'd be hurt. If I was okay with it, she would be okay with it. And I think coming to grips with the reality of how God has wired women as over against how he's wired men. And I do believe there is a distinction there. And that's not one is not better or more superior than the other. They're just different. Uh, they're complement, they're complimentary. Um, I wish I had spent more time just talking with her, listening to her and making it safe for her to talk about her fears, her desires, the ways I might've hurt her, the ways I could have better served her and loved her better. She was afraid to do that because she didn't want to hurt my feelings. She didn't have the courage to do it. Now she does. I wish that we had been able to do that early on, but it saved us a lot of grief over the years. So, you know, Paul says, and I'm not Paul Peter in first Peter three, seven, he says, husbands live with your wives, literally according to knowledge. Hmm. I don't think he's necessarily talking about the knowledge of God. I think he's talking about the knowledge of her as a woman, as a human being. Um, let the knowledge of her um, dictate how you live and how you relate. Um, I also think, you know, just this is my own personal journey. Um, for many years, for the first 15, almost 20 years of my ministry, I was a cessationist. And I quenched the spirit in my life, in my wife. Mm. Um, I made it very clear to her. These are, these are areas where you can't go. Uh, this is things you can't do. And I think it quenched the spirit in her. And it took a lot more for her to get over the hump, as it were, and embrace the reality of the spirit's work than it did for me. Um, and um, now I, now I kind of have to rein her in. <laughs> She's such a passionate, passionate woman in the things of God. Um, so, you know, today, if I were talking to myself today and to young men today, I'd say several things. Number one, probably ought to get off social media. I've never been on social media. I have no intention of ever getting on it. You probably ought to get off it. Amen. Uh, you need to carefully monitor uh, your use of the internet. Um, the, the rampant um, epidemic of pornography is destroying, destroying marriages daily. Yep. Um, Facebook, in which men are reconnecting with uh, high school sweethearts, is leading to more divorces than you can possibly imagine. Um, 
you know, I just, there's so many things that um, are, are preoccupying to a lot of men today when they need to take their eyes off of that and set their eyes back on their wives. How can they love them the way Christ loved the church? Mm-hmm. Nourish and cherish. Yeah. Well, Sam, that's really, really helpful. And brother, I'm so thankful that you give us an hour of your time just to bless our church here in Madison, Wisconsin. And um, so brother, just thank you so much. And I, I know this, this podcast is going to be a gift to all that listen to it. Well, I hope so. Thanks for having me on. It's been great. Thanks, Sam.